We'll be reading from Matthew 1, 18 through 25 this morning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. (coughs) But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father God, we just thank you for this passage, and we thank you for uh, Jesus, Father. Thank you for uh, sending him into the world to to die for us, Father, so that we might have eternal life and we have a place in heaven to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, If you are new with us today, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew, um, and so it'll be a long trek, but we are excited uh, to go through it together as a church As Christians, we cling to the truth that God became a man. He took on flesh, not subtracting his deity, but adding human nature to himself. In fact, we see this in the concept that Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 2, that he took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. This fact is so fundamental to our faith. That it serves as a pillar of all that we believe. If one were able to knock down the doctrine of the incarnation, he has knocked down and knocked out any hope that we have of a loving God interceding in the history of mankind, any hope we have of redemption, any hope that we have of eternal life lived in the presence of God. And so according to the gospel, God taking on flesh, God becoming human is simply not optional. That being said, it's likely that few Christians live in the daily reality that our God-man stands as a mediator at the right hand of the Father. Still more, it is likely that few understand the significance that God has given us a son to reign over all the earth. In other words, do we really understand how Christ taking on flesh, the Son of God, taking on humanity, and reigning, reigning as king on the throne of David fits into God's grand scheme? I mean, it it almost comes across when we talk about the incarnation as if it was a surprise, as if this doesn't, it's a one-off, it's an offshoot of what God has planned. And I hope to show you that it has never been an offshoot. It is God's plan from the beginning. God's plan from the beginning was to reign through the dominion of a man, through the dominion of a righteous king. As Genesis 1 teaches, creator God reigns over all things. All things have been made by him, therefore all things belong to him. God made Adam in his own image and said to Adam, have dominion, exercise dominion and rule over the earth. Now, the the idea was that as 
Adam is exercising dominion and ruling over the earth as a righteous God, as a righteous image of God, as king of creation, that God's glory would spread to cover all the earth. Eden would expand, and images of God would multiply, and the whole earth would be filled with glory of God as the waters covered the sea. Now we also know what happened, right? This first king of creation failed, as we all fail. And he tried to set up his own insurrectionists, his own, his own kingdom, uh, independent of God, independent of God's reign, so that he himself could establish what was right and what was wrong. And by doing so, he was separated and exiled from the kingdom of God. And not only that, he introduced corruption and decay into creation, death to humanity. Now, God's paradigm has never shifted His plan has always and still is to reign over the earth through a righteous human representative, through a righteous human king who would image him and mediate his blessing to all the earth. While the first king subjected all creation to corruption and decay, the last and perfect king restores it to life in the presence of God. In this light, Jesus the God-man was born to be king. He was born to fulfill that plan, that a man would reign as a representative of God, imaging him and spreading out blessing throughout the earth. Jesus says as much when he is sitting in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, so you are a king? And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Now what was the truth Jesus was testifying to? Was it not that he was king? Was it not that the kingdom had come through his life, through his death, through his resurrection? Jesus was born to be king, the perfect image, the perfect Adam, to do what Adam failed to do, to be God's image in the world, perfectly imaging God to all creation, and from there, spreading God's image throughout all the world, glorifying God so that God's glory would fill the nations. That all the earth would experience blessing in the presence of God. Jesus fits into the divine plan in this way. This is why we call him the last Adam, the new Adam. Because he reigns over creation as the first king of creation, only he doesn't fail. And whereas the first king of creation brought us death, this king of creation, this king that God has set up in his own image, he doesn't fail, and he brings us to life in the presence of God. Now, Matthew's, Matthew 1's description of Jesus' birth fits into Matthew's greater context of that kingship, of that idea that Jesus is the human king that God has sent to reign over the earth in righteousness and justice. By telling of Jesus' birth, I think Matthew's going to show us three truths about the work of God in the world, which I think and hope will give us greater insight into the rule and reign of Christ. In this, I I hope to show you that I might burst some of your bubbles, but the Christmas story is not ultimately about Joseph and Mary, but it's about God and his work and what he has accomplished in the world. They are important characters, they play important parts, but in the end, this is God's work for his own plan to provide his own redemption through his own son for humanity, whom he owns and has created and loves. Now, Lesson 1. Matthew 1, 18 through 19 begins in this way. 
Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now Matthew takes great labor to show that Mary became pregnant after she was betrothed and before the marriage was consummated. I won't explain what consummated means here for you. According to the laws of the time, to be betrothed was the same as being engaged. It just simply means that you were uh, committed to marriage. The only difference between our engagement and their betrothal was the husband and wife were already considered husband and wife. They weren't just an engaged couple. They were, for all intents and purposes, married and able to be considered husband and wife in all ways but one, and, and the one significant one. Um, during this betrothal time, which could last up to a year, they weren't to sleep together. They weren't to live together. They were to uh, prepare for their marriage together and for their life together. Now, because of this, because we know that for that year-long time they weren't to be together, a pregnant betrothed woman meant one of two things. Either it meant fornication, which means they couldn't hold their horses, and uh, they got over-anxious, Okay, and they, and they will just stop there. Or it means adultery, especially if the husband wasn't the one who caused this woman to be pregnant. Now, there's really no two other options about a pregnant betrothed woman at this time. Either it's fornication or adultery. Now, people who have grown up in the context of a church or who have any exposure to Christmas whatsoever may not fully appreciate the scandal that is wrapped up in a betrothed pregnant woman. We hear they were betrothed and she was pregnant and we pass right over it because we're used to it. We think of Christmas. We think of Mary. We think of the baby in the manger. That was not on Joseph's mind at the time. Had we seen, being good Jews, had we seen this pregnant betrothed woman, we would have most likely came to the same conclusion that everybody else has come to. They have fornicated or there's some kind of adultery amiss. This is scandalous. This is gross. This is sinful. Such was the perspective of Joseph. Joseph was a good Jew. He obeyed God's law. He understood What the law said, and in fact, the law, according to Moses, meant that his betrothed and pregnant wife deserved to be stoned. She had committed adultery. Now, being a righteous man, he he knows he can't take part in immorality. So he knows the marriage is over. The relationship is broken. They cannot be together. Otherwise, him marrying her as an adulterous woman would mean that he takes part in her sin and he now bears the guilt with her. So being a righteous man, but also being a merciful man, he decides to divorce her quietly so that he doesn't publicly disgrace her. She's going to live. She's not going to be stoned. He's not going to bring her out in front of the city gates and, and publicly disgrace her in front of everybody. He's going to divorce her, keep his own hands clean, and going to make sure that she lives. So it's both a merciful and just and righteous action here. Now, Joseph was absolutely right to do so. He was absolutely right to do so. In fact, to obey God, he had to do so. If things are the way he thinks they are. 
And he likely really would have divorced her. I, I don't think we see that. This isn't just a threat. This is, these are plans in the making. This is what he's planning on doing. He and Mary are going to break it off. Now, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a divorce, but you know divorces hurt, and they're messy, and sometimes they cause you anxiety, and they cause you to stay awake at night. There's all kinds of pain and broken promises and broken hopes and tears and weeping and all of this. Well, Joseph probably was the same way. I don't think we can too appreciate the way that Joseph might have been hurt by all this. Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Very plainly, the truth was not clear to Joseph what was happening. He had to be told what was going on. Someone had to intercede in a dream from God to tell him what was happening. From his own perspective, the purposes of God in all this were completely hidden. What he thought to be a sorrowful case of adultery proved to be evidence of God's faithful, redemptive plan. He fell asleep mourning Mary's perceived unfaithfulness and woke up praising God because of God's loving faithfulness. In this story, Joseph's sadness moves visibly from sorrow and brokenheartedness to glory of salvation. Visibly moves. Goes to bed sad. Wakes up joyful. Joseph's logic failed him, but his God had not. Mary's child was none other than the Son of God. Conceived inside of Mary as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, according to Luke 1. It was a miraculous pregnancy caused by the Spirit of God himself coming upon her. Now, the mention of when Luke mentions overshadowed, he, he wants us to think of two things. First, he wants us to think of the same Spirit that hovered over the, the waters in Genesis 1. But he also wants us to think of the glory of God and the Spirit of God coming down and overshadowing the tabernacle. The same God who created, the same Spirit of God who hovered over the waters and made all things, the same God who overcame every obstacle through miraculous powers, destroying Egypt and setting up his own dwelling in the tabernacle, is the same God who now makes this virgin woman pregnant. It's not impossible for him. He's not bound. Joseph's logic told him it is impossible for a virgin woman who is betrothed to become pregnant. It is impossible. There's no logic in that. He didn't see any way outside of one plus one equals two. But he forgot that God is the one who made that math. God is the one who can change that math. Because God is the God who can do anything he wants. He is not bound by human science. Not bound by human generation. Not bound by physical laws. God can do what he wills. Totally hidden from Joseph on that. Now here's where I think it relates to us. The incarnation teaches us that God works through a strange providence. Strange providence. It's okay to think God is strange, right? Because he doesn't do things the way I do them, right? That seems strange to me. Um, Things are not always what they appear. Our logic may not always have the right answers. Sometimes his hand is hidden from our sight and we cannot easily tell what God is doing. 
We, what might seem like sorrow or sadness right now may actually be God's salvation at work. This is seen in numerous places throughout the Bible. We think of the, the man born blind and the disciples ask him, whose sin was this? Is it, was, was it his own sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus answered them back, this, it, he's not blind because this man has sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed through him. We see it again in John chapter 11 when Mary and uh, Martha beckon Jesus to come and heal their brother Lazarus. And they say, come, and Jesus delays three days and waits for Lazarus to die. And his disciples are befuddled by this. Why are you waiting? Your friend is sick. He's going to die. And Jesus says, it is not going to end in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And he was indeed glorified four days later when this four-day-old, smelly, dead man came walking out of the tomb. The Bible's clear teaching is that things might look one way at present and yet be completely different when God's hand is revealed. Just think about how that brings you hope. There's many of you that are Joseph's right now. You've just found out that your dream is shattered. You go to bed at night, you toss and you turn, your stomach hurts. You're filled with sadness. You've had a tragedy in your family. You've had some kind of misery that is drawn up in your mind night after night. And you just, you can't seem to get out from underneath it. Let the incarnation speak truth to you. That sometimes things may not always be what they seem. Over and over, Joseph's potentially ruined marriage turned out to be the providence of a redeeming God. In the same way, a sad and lonely grave can become for us a stage of resurrection in which God will be glorified. The empty tomb becomes a backdrop to something even better. Prisons become churches. Sorrows give way to to salvation. Suffering points to the Savior. Tragedies, bad days, job losses, even poverty can work together and result in God's gracious redemption. And we not even know it. Joseph's story reminds us that even for righteous people, mature, God-glorifying, God-honoring people, sometimes we just don't see what God is doing. We just don't understand it. Sometimes his redemption is veiled. He hides a smiling face behind a dark cloud of trial. But take hope. Because as Joseph's sitting there, And he realizes that things are not as he seems. Then comes joy. Joy comes in the morning, literally for Joseph. Goes to bed. Sorrow may last through the night. Dream happens. God tells him what he's doing. God's hand powerfully revealed. This is not adultery. This is not fornication. This is not a broken marriage. This is not shattered dreams. This is not death of a relationship. This is reconciliation with God. This is redemption. This is promise being fulfilled. This is me working in suffering. This is me sending my son in flesh to die, which will confuse you again. He will be buried for three days. You will be befuddled, confused, brokenhearted, weeping, trembling, gnashing, hiding away. And yet three days later, my hand will be revealed again and my son will live and you will have life with God again. 
starts off with the incarnation. God works in ways we cannot see. If you're Joseph, you might just be at that moment that you've heard Mary is pregnant. Just wait. Before you despair, before you carry out the divorce, before you, 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 you give up all hope and you start to mourn, wait. Sorrow may last for the night. Joy comes in the morning. The second lesson we learn about God from, incarn- from the incarnation is that God's work ensures the victory of his gospel. It is God's work. And it is God's work because God himself accomplishes his own redemptive plan. And it, that's what makes the gospel true and reliable. That Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit proves that God's redemption is God's work. The incarnation was only possible because the Holy Spirit made it so. One commentator said that the, the Spirit brings Christ down to earth and makes him human. It's a beautiful picture. Spirit brings down Christ and makes him human. The Holy Spirit clothes the eternal Son in a robe of flesh. But that's not all the Spirit did. The Spirit makes sure that Jesus become, that Christ became a man. Christ already exists for all eternity. He's the Word who is with God and who, who was God, through whom all things were made. The Spirit is the one who brings him from heaven, clothes him in flesh, makes sure Mary becomes pregnant so that Jesus can indeed become fully human while still being fully God. That's the Spirit's work. But then you fast forward to Matthew 3. The Spirit rests on him at the baptism. Matthew 4, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness and ensures that he walks out of that temptation from Satan himself completely sinless. The Spirit's with him as he performs signs and wonders, and it's massive works of the Spirit, so much so that when the Pharisees say, by the power of Beelzebub he does these things, Jesus says it's by the hand of God, by the Spirit of God himself. Hebrews <coughs> Hebrews 9.14 says that Jesus was able to offer a sacrifice without blemish. How? Through the Spirit. And then who raises Christ from the dead? It says in Romans 8.11 that the Spirit raised the Son from the dead, vindicating Him in power. If you want to go even further in redemptive history, the Spirit's the one who draws and calls and brings us conviction of sin, shows us our need for Jesus. Just very plainly, it's God's Spirit that makes sure Jesus comes to earth. It's God's Spirit that made sure Jesus died. It's God's Spirit that made sure he'd raise again. And it's God's Spirit that made sure you would believe. God's work for his own redemptive plan. And because God is the only one who can do it, God is the only one that deserves glory for it. The incarnation is a visible illustration of that. Nobody could do this but God alone. Additionally, God's work in Christ would be accomplished because Christ's birth was according to promises that happened long before he came. In verse 21, the angel said, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the moment you hear the word son, that should ring a bell in your minds, especially if you've read through the Bible. You should think of Genesis 3.15. One day there would be a son of the woman who would come, 
and crush the head of the serpent. One day, Abraham would have a son who would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. One day, David would have a son who would reign forever over the eternal kingdom of God, bringing restoration to all peoples. One day, Isaiah would say, for unto us a son is given, for unto us a child is born. Here this son is. His name would be Jesus, which is Joshua in Hebrew, Yeshua, Yahweh's salvation. And he comes not to save his people from a merely human Pharaoh, not to save them from a merely human Egyptian army, not to save them from a Philistine giant or a merely human Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus comes to save his people from their greatest enemy, sin. He delivers a salvation no one from the beginning of time has ever been able to give. Jesus destroys the tyrant of tyrants, the tyrant that controls the hearts of tyrants, the tyrant that leads us to corruption, the tyrant that leads us to mistreatment of other people, the tyrant that leads to oppression, the tyrant that causes one man to kill another. Christ comes to deal with sin and to deliver his people from that. Now, I think at that we should ask, well, how did he do this? And immediately begin to think of the bloody cross. Jesus taking on flesh so that he could bear the whip. Jesus taking on flesh so that he could fill the punch to the face. Jesus growing a beard so he could have the sensation of what it feels like to have it pulled out. Jesus having hands so he can know what it's like to have nails driven through them. Jesus having lungs so he could know what it's like to gasp in agony on the cross as he tries to pull himself up by the nails in his hands to take a breath. Jesus having blood simply so it could drip down to the ground. Jesus having a heart so that it could be pierced with a spear. Jesus having a forehead so that they could put a crown of thorns on it. Jesus having flesh. So he could die. The savior of the world was not just born to be king. He was born to be a sacrifice. Jonathan Edwards once said this about Christ. In nothing has Christ appeared so much as a lion in glorious strength. Destroying his enemies as when he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And nothing more, in no other way was he more a lion. The lion of Judah growling and roaring in victory than when he was led silently as a lamb to the cross. This is the seeming foolishness of the gospel. The news that the Son of God would become incarnate simply so that he could be crucified and then resurrected. It demonstrates the sufficiency of our triune God. Only an infinitely wise, sovereign, majestic God could save the world by allowing men, the men he made, to kill his Son. Only a sovereign God could turn the grave into a symbol of life. That Yeshua, the Lord's salvation, had finally come according to the Father's will, according to ancient promises of old, ranging all the way back, not to Isaiah, not to David, not to Moses, not to Abraham, all the way back to the moment of the fall and extending even beyond before creation began, that God's plan happened exactly as God said That is our God. And he is the only one who accomplishes his own promises. My friends, you may be weak. 
He is strong. You may not be that smart. You may not be that wise. But he is. And at the end of the ages, the God you worship will be displayed for his manifold wisdom, his many-sided wisdom, as he makes all things tie in together perfectly in Christ. In such a way that if one small detail were off, it would not have ended the way that it does. God accomplishes his own work. God alone can redeem, and therefore to him alone belongs the glory. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors, um, I've, I've gone about five months without quoting him, so it's about time again. J.R.R. Tolkien once described the incarnation as the great catastrophe. Now, we all know what a catastrophe is, right? Um, when the Dallas Cowboys start to lose, it's a catastrophe, even if it's expected. Um, we'll move on from there. Uh, it, it, when, when your favorite... Uh, football team begins to lose, you might call it a catastrophe. When you burn the pie, it's a catastrophe, right? But catastrophes also speak of worse things. Catastrophe is when something horrible happens and it stops the happily ever after, right? Your story doesn't end in happily ever after. It's when the it, catastrophe is when the princess eats the poison apple and dies. That's a catastrophe. The catastrophe is when the princess pricks her finger and the whole kingdom falls into this eternal sleep with no one to wake them. Now, you catastrophe happens when the prince comes riding on the white horse and kisses his bride and raises her from the dead. The you catastrophe happens when sleeping beauty is awakened and the whole kingdom comes back to life. My friends, we have a gospel better than all the Disney princess movies that we have. We have a gospel better than every one of Aesop's fables or, or uh, Brothers Grimm could ever came up, come up with. We have a better high king prince who rides on the white horse at the moment of his bride's death, but doesn't just raise her by kissing her, raises her by dying for her, trades her life for his, brings her to life, raises himself from the dead, and then they live together happily ever after. You catastrophe. That's the incarnation. From heaven he came to sought her. When Jesus took on flesh, when Christ took on flesh, God himself steps down from heaven, steps into the world of the princess, raises her from the dead, and brings her home with him. Matthew says in verses 22 through 23 that all this took place, this is the eucatastrophe, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Now, if you know where this quote come from, it came from, it came from Isaiah 7 through 9, which is to be treated together. We don't just think of Isaiah 7, 14. When biblical writers quote an Old Testament text, they intend for you to think of the block that it comes from, not just the verse, right? When, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lebak sabachthani. When he says that, they expect for you to go all the way back to Psalm 22 and read the whole psalm from which Jesus is quoting. And when you read it, you find out Psalm 22 plays out the cross perfectly. It's the same way with Isaiah 7.14. He doesn't just quote Isaiah 7.14 as if he's cherry-picking Bible verses. He intends for you to go back to Isaiah 7-9, through 9, which in Isaiah 7, what ends up happening, the Assyrians are coming, they're going to destroy Judah, the king is freaking out about it, and begins to beseech God. God says that he will give him a sign of salvation. The sign of salvation will be a child born by a young woman named Emmanuel. Now, it seems like 
that child was born in those days. So this child's birth signifies God's salvation from his people's enemies. But as you read Isaiah, Isaiah is kind of speaking two languages here. On one side, he's talking to Ahaz and how he knows that Ahaz and, and, and Judah are going to be saved from their Assyrian enemies when the birth of this Emmanuel comes. But then he also speaks of a greater Emmanuel that is coming, a new child, an ultimate child, God himself, that will come and deliver his people from even greater enemies than the Assyrians. So as you're reading Isaiah 7 through 9, you begin to see that God is talking about the complete restoration of his people. Isaiah 7, Emmanuel will be born and they'll be delivered from their enemies. But then by Isaiah 9, you, t- you see him talking about one day a light will shine in the darkness. God's people will once again multiply and increase. Joy will be replaced. Uh, 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 joy will replace sorrow. Slavery will end. War will be over. And why is all this true? Why is it that the marching boots will be burnt? Why is it that the swords will be hammered into plows and into reaping sickles? Why is it? That death will be no more. Here's what Isaiah says. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. In Matthew, the child Emmanuel is born. And it marks the salvation of God's people. And creation's restoration. The eucatastrophe. There. Creation corrupt. Jesus comes, becomes a man. And because Jesus is God with us, the fall is being reversed and all things are being made new. He is ending war. He is ending hunger. He is ending cancer. One day, because this son has been given, all creation will be free from everything that makes us groan, from everything that makes us anxious, from everything that makes us cry, from everything that hurts your heart. It will be free. All bad things will become untrue. Bad days will be over. Sad days will be gone. Funerals won't be a thing anymore. Sick babies won't be around. They'll be healthy. Man, I love the great Christmas songs. The words of the old song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, prove amazingly true according to Scripture. O come, thou king of nations, bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our Prince of Peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come again. With us to dwell. The joyful message of these lyrics will be accomplished in Jesus. When we were separated from God, God sent his son to be God with us. When we couldn't get to him, he came to us. He bridged the gap, he ended the exile, and he has made an end of sin, and soon he'll do away with sorrow. Every sad thing will be swallowed up when Emmanuel comes back to reign on the throne of King David. Now, what do we do with all that? That's great, right? Great gospel. Now, tell me, how do I apply it? Well, I think we do exactly what Joseph did when he discovered the hidden hand of God. Notice how he turned from sorrow to joy in just a few brief verses. What, what happened after he discovered the seemingly sad situation was actually God's salvation at work? 
Verses 24 through 25 say this, and Joseph woke from sleep, pretty simple, okay, he just woke up. I, I can just imagine Joseph waking up and going, what a great night. He was going to divorce Mary the next day. Wakes up from sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua, Jesus. Very simply, Joseph trusted and he obeyed God. The angel's message was enough to overcome Jesus' perception. When he was shown that his own perspective was wrong, he put his own plans aside, right? He wasn't like, oh, that was a great dream. I still don't know what God's doing, so I'm just going to go ahead with my plans to divorce Mary. He puts his own plans aside, and he obeys, and he adopts Jesus as his own son. Joseph's response models how we as king's people should respond to God. Do we take God at his word? When God's hand is hidden, but then we go to Scripture and we remember how it all is going to end, and we remember what God is doing in us, that he's using our suffering to refine us, do we take God at his word and do we accept it joyfully and trust? As hard as that is, as hard as that is, I've never had cancer, so I'm speaking as someone who's been cancer-free for my 30 years of life, not to know what it's like to try to trust God with cancer in my body, knowing that God's using that cancer to further me in his promise. But I have walked through, with many of you, through the death of a spouse. I've seen many people buried in the hope that they'll come out of the ground. I've been there with many people when the doctor walks in and says, yep, here's the scan. I've been there when people found out that the cancer had returned. I've been there when we buried my brother. I've been there while we waited for three days while my wife was waiting to find out if she had brain cancer. It's hard. And just telling you to buck up and get over it is not going to help. But the application is to do what Joseph did, though. To understand that God does sometimes hide his hand. Just because you can't see his hand, it takes trust from us to understand that God is still working in ways we don't see, in ways we don't understand. And then when his hand is revealed, we obey and do what he says. When we are given the terminal diagnosis, do we trust God's promises of resurrection are still true? Or do we think that God has changed? When sorrow and sadness hides God's hand from our sight, do we believe that God still works out all things for the good for those who trust and love him? Or do we waffle on that? When God calls us to do difficult things, like Joseph, to adopt a child who's not biologically ours, do we step out in faith and do it, even if we don't understand how it fits into our plan? If Jesus is king... And if he truly is the king who took on flesh so that we could have life with God, does he not deserve our full obedience and faith? In Jesus, God stepped into human history. He took on flesh. He preached the good news of the kingdom. He carried the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And right now he reigns at the right hand of God, serving as our high priest, mediating between us and God. And one day, just think of how this is, this is crazy. One day he comes back. And it says he rides on a white horse and he has a kingly sash, holy to the Lord. 
He's got a crown on his head. He shines like the sun. He speaks and mountains crumble. Splits the clouds, riding with authority from God on high. And for those who trust him, he says, I know their name. The king, at that moment, as he splits the clouds and as he comes riding in the heavens and he comes back, he knows the names of his citizens, the ones that will be in his kingdom for all eternity. Knows them, thinking of them, sees them. And he rides in. Now imagine the beauty of watching this glorious king shining like the sun, looks like a lion, or or at least you feel like you should bow before him like you would a lion, and yet you still see holes in his wrist, holes in his feet, marks on his forehead. When he moves, you see, you catch a glimpse of his shoulder where there's a slash mark against it that was done for your sin. You watch him as he walks by in silence, quietly walking to his throne. Not one word is said. You can hear the new creation bees buzzing. You can almost hear the flowers blossoming. And at that moment, in dead silence, all creation takes a breath. And Jesus sits on the throne. He takes the leaves from the tree of life. You might not have known that shows back up in the Bible, but it does. It's there in Genesis 2, and we don't know it of it again until Revelation 22. When it says that he takes the leaves from the tree of life, and he uses them to heal the nations. King as a good doctor. He will do what Adam failed to do. Garden paradise will be restored. And here's the best part about it. We will never, ever lose it again. And not only will we ever lose it again, we will be unable to lose it again. Tears will be wiped away. Death will be destroyed. All things will be made new. God will forever dwell with his people. When you read the incarnation, see what God has done. When you watch the Spirit come on Mary, Jesus takes on flesh. He marches to the cross. He's lowered into the tomb. And then he's raised again. How can you not join with Paul and say, To the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I can do nothing better than to read that again. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.